when do you think the 90s ended for you? <laughs> 1999 at 12 o'clock on the 31st of December. Probably 1999, because I graduated from high school. That changes a lot in your life. Yeah, 1999, like with the decade. So for me, the end of the 90s was a transition. In 1999, I joined Vogue magazine. I got pregnant in 2001, and so that started a new era for me. Obviously, the, the mini skirts and the knee boots and all the other 90s stuff, they went into my boxes in the attic. Personally, I was just about to meet my husband and was ready for that next stage in my life. I think it's when acid wash went away. Acid wash. I mean, come on. It's so funny. I can only really answer it in such a personal way. It probably ended on January 4th, 2000, when I took a plane to New York. In so many ways, the 90s feel like recent history, even though they were now 30 years ago. And for those of us who lived through the time, it can be hard to remember what the decade in fashion was about. We were just living it. It's only in retrospect that we can see the leitmotifs. But now, looking back, we see that the 90s were a time when high fashion went mainstream. More people than ever were paying attention to what designers were creating, and those designers' work became more accessible. At the close of the decade, though, a new, powerful force grabbed a foothold in the fashion world. The internet. A new millennium was on the horizon. Welcome to In Vogue, the 1990s, a podcast about a pivotal time that ushered in a new era in fashion and in culture. Join us as we examine the defining moments of the decade that shape fashion as we know it today. We'll hear from fashion leaders, cultural icons, and Vogue's own editorial team. I'm Anna Winter. And I'm Hamish Bowles, Vogue's international editor-at-large and your host. This is the first time I've seen this piece since I wrote it. Do you want the top and then read the next paragraph? In the fall of 2001, Kathy Horn was a reporter covering New York Fashion Week for the New York Times. She was one of hundreds of writers from around the world tasked with recapping each day's shows in breathless detail for buyers, shop owners and editors who couldn't witness the collections in person. Okay. Where is Daryl Kerrigan when you need her? That was the question that hovered over Kenneth Cole's collection on Monday as the models trooped out in draped jersey dresses slung with tough leather bags. Her roundup of the first few shows went to print on the third day of Fashion Week. A Tuesday. That was supposed to be the day where Mark Jacobs was showing. I had my DKMY show that day, and it was at the Armory. It was like the most beautiful fall day. The sky was bluer than blue. It was just clear and sunny. And to this day, if it's fall and it's a really beautiful day, I sometimes don't trust it. It was such a gorgeous day, and it was my birthday. I went to a hair salon to have my hair done for the shows that day. That was one of the most harrowing days of my entire life. Fern Malice was the head of New York Fashion Week. You know, shutting that down and going backstage and telling people, 
turn the music off. We've just been attacked by terrorists. You know, grab your things and go home and be with your loved ones. And tears rolling down my face trying to speak to people. You know, it was just a horror. I saw it on the television in the salon and then walked out onto Madison Avenue afterwards and saw the smoke and the debris. I walked from there over to the corner of 42nd and 6th Avenue, right next to Bryant Park. And the memory is of everybody walking on the sidewalk and looking up and south. It was so strange to walk on the sidewalk and see people just looking up and not typically New Yorkers looking down or looking blank and not making eye contact. I ran into um, a senior executive from Saks on the corner and and then somebody else came by and somebody else came by. All people, all of us who were planning to go to a show at nine o'clock. We sort of stood there without anything, not knowing what to do, not knowing the scope of it. And of course, not wanting to go into the tents or even, I think we all knew that there was no fashion week at that point. It was closed, it was done, finished. In a tragic and horrifying way, what we now understand as the 90s came to an abrupt end on September the 11th, 2001. For so many people, whether in fashion or business or anywhere else in American life, 9-11 was a shock to the system. The growth and optimism of the 90s began to falter. And it was this anxiety that effectively marked the end of the era. In a moment, the buzz and optimism that opened New York Fashion Week was swallowed up by a collective grief and completely overshadowed by a new kind of global anxiety. My perspective changed. Georgina Grenville. It was not possible to, to carry on uh, in the same way as before. No one was shopping. I mean, how could you think about shopping? I mean, it was, it was a disaster. For the first time in decades, consumers stayed home en masse, and the impact hit the industry in domino-like fashion. Fear of flying brought tourism to a virtual halt, which led to a precipitous drop in fragrance and garment sales, things one might typically purchase away from home. Department stores tore up outstanding orders, leaving designers with ready-to-ship clothing and nothing to show for it. Major brands could withstand the loss, Others, not so much. I think we saw very immediately the fallout for the industry. Mark Holgate, Vogue's fashion news director. Suddenly designers, their shows were cancelled. Orders were cancelled. The big question was whether other cities would show their collections. What changed, beyond the loss of revenue, was something harder to put your finger on. At the end of the day... Fashion, like most other industries, carried on. Europe held its fashion weeks, and reporters from all over the world got on planes to cover them, albeit this time with significantly more airport security. Young, boundary-pushing designers continued to emerge out of the scenes of New York, London, Paris and Milan, admittedly after a hiatus. So what was it? Cathy Horn again. You take some of your innocence away, it takes some of your... You become... You become careful about what you say and what you, you know, um, what you write about. No one could have seen it coming. 
especially because the fashion world of the 90s had just kept growing and growing. The fashion industry had been at an apex of its cultural influence and reach, and along with that came more resources and funding. There were teams of people producing the collections, teams of you know people doing the casting and the music and the and the backdrops, you know, like teams. Fashion designer Anna Swee. Before there wasn't that huge budget to do those kind of those kind of productions. Fashion designer Isaac Mizrahi. It became a kind of like putting things on, putting things on, putting on, putting on, putting on, so that they can't miss it. It's not like, what do you notice? It's what don't you miss? All in all, by the late 1990s, the world seemed as if it had no limits. There was certainly uh, uh, a sense that fashion was just becoming a bigger part of the conversation, for sure. Mark Holgate. Because of the presence of Hollywood movie stars on the red carpet. Fashion designer Victoria Beckham. For me, seeing Tony Braxton on a podium wearing one of those white Tom Ford dresses, you know, with the with the with a hole cut out of the side and the big piece of hardware was just I mean, gosh, I get chills just thinking about it now. And on, on magazine covers, uh, the presence of the supermodels, the presence of designers going to these big established fancy houses. Suddenly this big house comes in. Fashion designer Hussein Shalayan decides to buy your brand and opens shops for you everywhere like mushrooms. So you had this growing sense for sure of a broader public interest in fashion. What really attracted us to Polo was the way the colors stood out, you know. Lowlife founder Rack Low. The, the way the symbols is right, really big and bold on the sweaters or the shirts, you know. Those type of things really made people look at us in a different way. But through the polo, we also created our own our own style. And that style is called being low down. And that means um, being polo down from head to toe. I mean, from the hat to the socks, the drawers, the shorts, the shirts, everything's Ralph Lauren. And I think also that the 90s really they obviously reinvented that whole category of the it accessory. So it was the it bag, the it shoe, the it boot. So all of a sudden, you know, more people could, with one item, signify that they were in the know and they were in fashion and that they knew what was going on. Actor Sharon Stone. I would come down and spend the day at Fendi in all of the various studios and looking at all of the new stuff and seeing the new purse designs, because I think the baguettes are the only practical evening bag in existence. Fashion was everywhere and permeated beyond its typical bounds. What Dapper Dan do is I translate culture. Dapper Dan, fashion designer and renowned outfitter to the 80s and 90s burgeoning hip-hop scene. Whatever we was wearing anyway... I formulated that and I said, this is how we want to look, but I'm going to give it a luxury look like we like with European flair. Fashion designer Mark Jacobs. I think looking back on it, I guess it was, it was quite, there was quite a lot of change happening. And it's, yeah, there was a lot of change. And I, I think we did, I think it's had lasting change, lasting effect. I mean, I think what what was predicted was the way that people would be dressing, this kind of you know, this this sort of mixing of things and sort of taking from different places, the sort of 
I, I mean, it's it's a dangerous word to use right now, appropriation, but I think appropriating from different places, of course, we had a very different vocabulary then. But when I mean appropriation, I mean taking a bit from the thrift shop and a bit from the street and a bit from here and a bit from there. I'm not talking about cultural appropriation. I'm talking about like this idea of of taking things and collaging them together to create something new, you know. Mark Holgate again. There was just more fashion. By the end of the 90s, there was just more fashion. You know, it being an industry that had been about certain established luxury players, a group of independents in Europe, a group of independents in New York that had a kind of allure about them, but also a kind of inaccessibility because most of their clothes were only really sold in the United States. They weren't being sold that much in Europe, a little bit, but not as much as they would go on to become so widely available. And you just saw exactly, you know, this idea of more money flooding in. At the end of the 90s, the fashion world seemed flush with money and ideas. And although no one knew the Twin Towers were about to fall, an anxiety about the new millennium was already percolating. More when we come back from the break. Hey, Run Through listeners, are you curious about what goes on behind the scenes at Vogue and in the world of fashion? Join Vogue Club, a one of a kind fashion community where you can unlock exclusive access to Vogue editors, industry players, and fellow members, as well as receive expert style advice, tickets to VIP events, handpicked gifts, and so much more. Visit VogueClub.com today and get 20% off using promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. That's VogueClub.com, promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. So much in fashion changed during the 90s, but it's also important to remember that despite the influx of money and cultural exchanges, the fashion industry was still very slow to adapt to the new reality on the horizon. Fashion clung to its well-established paradigms. The seasonal cycle of runways, and the marketing campaigns and editorial photo shoots that followed. The fashion industry is cyclical and it has historically operated on seasons, but there's no real sort of start or end to a year. Designers think more in seasons than they do in, in you know, finite 365-day years. Nicole Phelps, Global Director of Vogue Runway. The spring shows happen historically in September and October because that's when brands are showing the press and buyers the collections that will arrive in stores in early spring of the following year. And they show the collections, the orders get made, the magazine stories get planned, and then the clothes arrive in stores when the magazines are coming out. So there's this long lead time in between fashion shows and the arrival of clothes in stores. And historically, that was fine because the way that fashion journalism and fashion storytelling worked was you were creating stories for magazines and 
It took as long to put a magazine together as it did to make a collection. If you were an insider and you worked for a magazine and you didn't see the show and you didn't take pictures yourself, which people didn't really do in those days, you had to wait for the designers to send you their photo lookbooks in the mail, or you had to wait for the collection issues of magazines that would come out, you know, several months later when the clothes were arriving in stores. But in the very late 90s, that fashion cycle would be turned on its head. One of the markers of the end of the 90s, in fact, came with a website launched in 2000, Style.com. When Style.com was born, it totally changed the way a fashion show would be covered. Suddenly, every look was being photographed and every look was being put onto the website. In these earliest days, there were some brands that were really reluctant to participate for fears of copying. In fact, Chanel famously, until the mid to late O's, would let Style.com post pictures from the show, but then ask them to be taken down a few months later because they wanted to be part of the storytelling around Fashion Week, Paris Fashion Week. They wanted to make news, but then they, they were so concerned about copying that they insisted that the images be taken down. And, you know, Chanel, it was then and obviously remains one of the preeminent brands in, you know, in the fashion universe. There's a whole history of reticence about exposure in the fashion industry because of copying. So, for example, after the Second World War, they started charging fees for buyers to come and see the show and no cameras were allowed. And then people would, you know, with like, Photographic memories would go to the shows and they'd run back to their rooms and they'd they'd sketch everything out. And then Balenciaga and his protege Givenchy, in order to prevent copying, they actually refused to show on the regular schedule and show on their own schedule. So in 1999, fashion was very reluctant. They were not that eager to jump on the tech bandwagon. I mean, first of all, people are really busy. Like there's you're just like running and running and it's always drama. There's not a lot of time to stop and sort of learn something new. This anxiety around the internet wasn't just within the fashion industry. Months before Style.com launched, a fervor took hold, a panic around Y2K. It just so happens that 1999 really did feel like the end of the 90s because it was this ticking clock because of the Y2K anxiety. It really did feel, in some ways, like a ticking time bomb. Fashion historian Kim Jenkins. You know, we were wondering, okay, we just came out with internet, everything's going to shut down. You know, people just were really anxious about this, like, clock ticking, throwing us into a whole new millennium. The global anxiety of what are we going to expect when the clock strikes midnight. This new tool called the internet at first brought more questions than answers to the fashion world. Emails replaced phone calls, images became digital, technology was shaping the world, and faster than the industry was able to adapt. Designers felt a change was coming, but no one knew exactly what that world would look like, so they reverted back to familiar tropes, the retro-futurism of the 60s. I mean, of course, futurism and fashion has been a theme. I mean, there are early shoots in Vogue about like, you know, imagining what what fashion would be in the year 2000 or in the year 1990. And of course, in the 60s, space age fashion emerged at the same time as space exploration. Led Borelli Person, Vogue's archive editor. So the idea of modernism 
exist or futurism, but it tends to be a sort of retro futurism that takes in the 60s sort of view of, you know, silvers and whites and things like that. Around Y2K, Alexander McQueen did a show that had these light up corsets. He also used reflective patterning that kind of looked like circuit boards. While highly conceptual designers like McQueen were imagining the aesthetics of the past and future through their digital runways, independent designers like Helmut Lang were quick to embrace digitization and understood how it could benefit them. He was already a respected designer and he came and he just, he embraced technology. The fashion system in general was very, very slow to accept technology. Helmut accepted it and he, very early on, he did a show that was available on the internet and on CD-ROM. I got one of those discs. We all have nostalgia for these first moments of change. We were living in the last years of the 20th century, standing on a precipice of the digital age. The 90s gave us a glimpse of what the future held, what we could imagine the internet age could be. Few saw it at the time, but in retrospect it seemed so obvious. Cell phones and the internet led us to being able to see any fashion show whenever we wanted, at any time. When we all woke up on the morning of 2000 and saw that Millennium Bug had not wreaked havoc on the world and things were still standing, I think it was full steam ahead at that point, into the 2000s. The 90s were the end of what we've known, uh, the, the end of what the fashion industry had known. I mean, from the minute we kind of got into 2000, everything kind of changed and it went very, very quickly. Actor and model Tyson Beckford. 2000s and so forth would never be like the 90s. Never be like the 90s. It's possible that this move towards technology, even more than the abrupt recession caused by 9-11, was what really ended the 1990s. As new connectivity and devices began to change the ways we lived, first gradually and then very, very quickly, the whole fashion world could no longer hold on to any of its old ways of operating. In a way, for all the change that happened in fashion in the 90s, it was also the last decade that the old fashion world existed. Do you have a sense in your mind of when, when the 90s ended for you? That's the spirit of the 90s? I'm not so sure that it has, Hamish. <laughs> when do I consider the 1990s ending? I never see it as an end, but more as an extraordinary adventure that one builds on. The 90s are still going on. <laughs> it never ended. <laughs> I do not believe the 90s is over. <laughs> I, I think different. I feel like the 90s is happening right now. It ends when I die. That's my answer, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I'm seeing a lot of 90s lingering. <laughs> I'm seeing a lot of 90s lingering. But that, that only just says that that was a, an um, amazing era and very creative. It's a time of good music, good feeling. Classic. 20 years on, we can look back at the start of the new millennium and clearly see the kind of monumental changes that were about to happen. The 90s, the decade of mass influence and cultural exchange, was simultaneously the end of an era and the beginning of a new one. The 90s were both the last time that the fashion industry behaved according to its old 20th century rules, 
but also the first time that we could see hints of the massive changes that would impact our lives in the new millennium. Thank you so much for seeing us through the 90s, and see you next time in Vogue. In Vogue, the 1990s, is presented by Anna Winter and produced by Jasmine Aguilera, Julia Doyle, Kinsey Clark, Tarka Zen, and Megan Lubin. Edited by Maura Waltz. Mixed by Rainhouse. In Vogue's editorial team is Laird Borelli Person, Mark Holgate, Nicole Phelps, and myself. Special thanks to creative editorial director Mark Riducci, digital director Annalisa Yabsley, and vice president of audio Julie Shen. Please do subscribe to the podcast. It helps new listeners find the show. You can find additional information, incredible imagery, and episode references in the show notes or at vogue.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Hamish Bowles. Until next week, in Vogue. <laughs>